0: It's the damn book show on the Derek and Mike podcast. So this is a brand new thing that Derek and I are doing where we are going to recommend and discuss a few of our favorite books or pieces of literature or things to read or anything of that nature. Recommend it to you, our friends, the listeners, in hopes that you will find one or two uh, things in here that you might enjoy.
1: And uh, yeah, you excited about this, Derek? Yeah, I am. right on this is gonna be fun it's gonna be different yeah let's see where this thing takes us all
0: right all right so let's uh let's just jump right into it i got i got three books plus a little bonus at the end uh i want to mention books that it was honestly hard for me to go through my list i was going back through i buy everything online so it was easy to go through my order history and uh look at some things i've read over the last few years and it was seriously hard to whittle it down to three recommendations for our inaugural damn book show So here it goes. Um, My first recommendation is my favorite book of all time from my favorite author. I'm starting with like a number one. This is it for me. If I was stuck on a desert island and I could only bring one book, it would be this book. Okay. Okay. Um, It is by David McCullough, my favorite author. And this one's called Mornings on Horseback. The story of an extraordinary family, a vanished way of life and the unique child who became Theodore Roosevelt. Oh. Um, it is, it came out in 1981, uh, the year I was born also, which is uh, totally unrelated, but coincidental. And uh, it won a, a National Book Award in, in 82, the year after it came out, it won the National Book Award. And it is a narrative history. So it's nonfiction. It's a biography of Teddy Roosevelt, but it's a little different. In the sense of it's not like a full blown cradle to grave biography that a lot of them are, um, which I've read a lot of biographies on Teddy Roosevelt. I'm super interested in the guy. I love him. He's one of my favorite historical figures. I love reading about him. And this book is my favorite and stands out above the others because it takes a special perspective on his developmental years, his childhood years and what made him into the guy he became. So, it takes this really in-depth look at his family, his dad in particular, who had a huge impact on who he became, and his social sphere in in early New York in late 1900s New York, and uh, just the world in general, what it was in those days at the the turn of the century, and all these form- formative events and and things going on around the times that changed. Who was maybe surprisingly to some people a super scrawny, asthmatic, sickly kid who didn't really have any friends, ended up going to Harvard and became like a squeaky-voiced, nerdy snob kind of guy into what we all know is the guy we all know as Teddy Roosevelt, the super tough, rugged, um, you know, hardcore cowboy president ass-kicker, super-buff guy that we all think of, I think, when we think of TR. And it's an incredible story that that molded him. So David McCullough really focused on those formative years. It's really like a young, early-life biography of Teddy Roosevelt focused on all those things. And it's written in such a beautiful way that creates this incredible story that's just engrossing and a fantastic book. I can't recommend it enough. Um, so that's why I'm uh, recommending it. And um, it... Have you do you like Teddy Roosevelt? You ever read about him? You ever thought about him? Do you care about him?
1: Uh here comes my shame. No. All right. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you know, why I'm you know but, it. but I I am this it's intriguing though to hear about this just because, you know, I I would like to hear more about the past and him and and you know, I to be honest, I don't know anything about really his accomplishments uh or even what political Man. party he was in. I I'm really like completely in the dark on that. Well, we could talk for hours about the, his accomplishments
0: um, as president, not as president, uh, just an endless man and endri- an, a really long list of, of important milestones in his life. Um, this book, obviously, like I said, focuses on the early years where um, he was born into a super wealthy um, family. The Roosevelts, obviously, uh, in in New York. Um, His dad was crazy rich. His grandpa um, started a very successful business, made a ton of money, um, handed it off to his sons, one of whom was Theodore Roosevelt Sr., Teddy's dad, and his dad was crazy rich, really didn't have to work, chose to work, was really more of a philanthropist, and uh, a guy who saw it as his role as a super-privileged rich guy, Uh, he saw his role as needing to give back to his community, um, and spending all of his time basically giving back. Um, so he was a really charitable philanthropic minded kind of a guy, super big heart. They even called him like his nickname was great heart and, uh, really well known in New York and beyond for just being this, um, proponent of the arts and helping the poor and all these really admirable things, right? Just fucking awesome guy.
1: So his dad and, made all the money, and then he gave it all away. Uh, yeah, he didn't give it all away. No, he I'm certainly teasing. maintained a fortune. Injured. But yeah, basically,
0: yeah. his dad worked his ass off to create this monster fortune, and then one of his sons, Teddy Roosevelt Senior, uh, yeah, basically used that leisure and luxury to give back, which is cool. Yeah. yeah. Happen, oh, right? I,
1: absolutely. Yeah, no, I was being um, facetious with that. But so his dad, his grandfather, is the one that made the Roosevelts all the money. So before yes. that, they didn't have any money. Okay.
0: Uh, I don't really know about before Teddy's grandpa. Um, it, it does kind of touch on some of that in the book, and I didn't recall or note any of that, where it goes back to how the Roosevelts uh, migrated to America and all that kind of stuff. And and they they have all that documented. But essentially his grandpa was the one who um, built this monster. God, I want to say, I don't mean, remember, I should I have taken better notes, but I think it was like a, a glass business um, that made crazy money and he retired, split it between his sons, one of whom was Teddy Roosevelt's dad, and uh, his dad was just a super rich, super giving, charitable, uh, active guy. And he instilled all that in his son. So he had four kids, two daughters, um, Bammy and Corinne. Bammy was a nickname. His oldest daughter was named Anna. So Anna and Corinne, and then Teddy, which is Theodore Roosevelt Jr, and his brother Elliot, who Elliot, is an interesting guy on his own. He ended up growing up to have a lot of like drug and alcohol problems, maybe some depression or who knows, he, he ended up having some demons and, uh, lived kind of a tortured life. But he, and he was the father of Eleanor Roosevelt, um, who Eleanor is, is kind of a variation of Elliot. Uh, that was where she got her name. So Eleanor Roosevelt was Teddy Roosevelt, the president's niece. And they were very close, uh, later in life. But, early Teddy Roosevelt, when he was a kid um, growing up in New York, he was super active. And like I said before, he was super sickly and not a likely candidate for any kind of um, (laughs) uh, image of strength, to say the least. He was a scrawny, asthmatic, uh, squeaky kid and full of life, and full of curiosity, he loved science. He liked to hunt animals and started practicing taxidermy, like stuffing animals at a really young age. Um, Teddy was always famous for being a big hunter. He traveled all over the world later in life. After his presidency, he went on like African safari and killed all kinds of big game. And, and that can be controversial these days um, through a modern lens. People may or may not think that's a cool thing to do, but uh, that's what he did. And it all started when he was really young. He was super into... Um, Not just killing and stuffing animals, but he basically created like a natural history museum out of their New York home as a kid, as like a little kid. And he would kill all these different specimens, stuff them, label them uh, by by their proper Latin genus names or whatever. And he would study them on that scientific level. And eventually he had a hand in developing one of the first natural history museums and that sort of thing. Like he ended up collecting enough specimens to build a museum exhibit out of it and uh his mom is worth mentioning she was like this beautiful graceful southern belle named Mitty bullock and the bullocks were a very well-known southern family and his dad theodore roosevelt senior was uh a rich northern guy very different um back then obviously before you know just after the civil war Um, or I'm sorry, this was when, when Teddy was born, it was just before the civil war. He was only like five or six when the civil war started. So I'm sure there was some colorful conversations in his house between his, you know, um, abolitionist Northern father and his, uh, Southern bell mom, whose family was very entrenched in the uh, Southern way of life. Uh, he had uncles who fought in the Confederacy. And uh, a lot of that, there's a lot of Civil War history, too, that surrounds Teddy Roosevelt. And it's really easy to go off on any of these little side branches with him because he's so layered and interesting. But this book really focuses on his upbringing and what created the guy who became Teddy Roosevelt out of this tiny, scrawny, squeaky kid. And um, a lot of it has to do with pure grit, like bootstraps kind of a mindset. Uh, His dad essentially sat him down at some point and was like, hey, look, Teddy, you are sickly and you are not going to become much um, just automatically. Like, you're super scrawny, you're not in good health. And if you plan on going very far or really doing anything or even living long, you're going to have to, quote, make your body. Um, And what he meant by that was literally just start doing rigorous exercise. And he built a gym for Teddy on the family's balcony on their little New York home. They had a back balcony. And they built a gym, and Teddy was just this super devoted, um, strict, disciplined kid, and he started working out, like, every day. And basically, that just became part of who he was from a really young age, just started pumping iron, basically, to... Get rid of asthma to build up a stronger body, improve his health and do all these things. And and that's kind of where it all started was his dad just tell him, like, look, you're scrawny and sickly. You're the only one who can change it. So, uh, you know, get up there and just do it. You're the only one who can do it. So it's on you. That's before working out was in vogue. Yeah, I I imagine. I mean, uh, I kind of wish I could see a picture of that workout gear. Like, I'm sure it's very different than the workout system I have in my garage or, you know, any modern gym. But I, I imagine essentially the same lifting weights, curls, just be free weights. pressing. They,
1: they would have free weights back then. Yeah, I guess th- there's
0: a story yeah. of someone who saw him working out on a bar, like like I, I picture it as like parallel bars and almost like doing dips. But he was doing some sort of a move that looked very feminine to this observer, and he he saw this young Teddy Roosevelt lifting himself up and trying to spread his chest, uh, and the guy was like, "Wow, that guy." Oh, the way he said it was really funny, but essentially what he's saying was um, that guy, it has really admirable uh self-esteem because anyone who would allow themselves to be seen looking so feminine
1: must be very secure. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't phrase it that, that well. He was probably it's, like, hey, you puss. <laughs>
0: <laughs> look at this guy. He's not hey. afraid to look like a total puss.
1: Yeah
0: yeah yeah essentially but it's weird to think of teddy roosevelt in that way um because he's just known as this guy's guy super tough boxer cowboy hardcore rugged dude um like the rough riders were a famous group that he later became a part of and uh it's interesting to see him the way that he was when he was a young kid so this part of why this book is just so interesting and well written and uh Anyway, so Teddy was a super scrawny, weak kid, started working out, built himself up, ended up going to Harvard because he was a rich kid and that's what rich kids did. And he was kind of just tolerated. He was just kind of this squeaky voice, know-it-all snob and uh, made a few friends. But he ended up becoming interested in politics, joined like New York politics um, as a super young guy and just ended up. Being, like, really strong-headed and a little bit naive, but totally gung-ho, where he would just throw himself into debates with totally seasoned politicians. And they would just be like, who is this kid, like, coming in here telling us what's up? Like, shut your face, dude. What do you fucking know about anything? But he was really eager to learn and very assertive and really just injected himself into the whole world of, of thinking and, and had this, le- this this position of common sense that was rare um and it stuck out started to build a name for him so it was a really cool kind of a way to break into politics and and just make himself known so he was a Um, debater so he was probably on the debate team i would imagine he was a steamroller and just a hard-nosed inflexible advocate for um common man's rights and common sense which common sense doesn't prevail a lot in political arguments you know what i mean there's a lot of posturing and and lobbying and, and pushing for an agenda that may or may not rewrite but there's all sorts of you know uh, extra agendas attached to whatever there's being proposed and he was just this purely ideological like hey this makes sense to me it's the right thing to do and everyone needs to agree with me because there's no other way to look at it other than this very common of a, like a guy in his twenties, right that's how guys in their twenties are, yeah. super ideological, um, strong headed uh, and and he brought a lot of that to New York politics when he was a young kid and a really sad thing that happened to him when he was when he was a young kid in those early New York political years in his twenties was he he courted and won this really beautiful young girl named Alice Lee. And he had to work really hard to to get her to like him back because he was kind of annoying. Um, but he he finally won her, and they were married, got her pregnant, and she gave birth to a baby girl. They named Alice, and then she got really sick with Bright's disease, which the daughter is or the like wife, a, the wife. Sorry, so the daughter was fine. Uh, the brand new mom got really sick with Bright's disease and ended up. Fucking tragic, dude. She ended up dying in his home on the same day in the same house as his mom. So he was away at but work his mom in died Albany, too? New York politics. So his mom got sick and died, and his wife, his brand new wife, got sick and died in the same oh. house on the same day. Oh, it's horrible. And he was away at work and in, in Albany, I believe, the New York seat of government or whatever. And he got word of this. He basically got like successive messages delivered hey your baby was born you're a daddy and then the next one is like hey you need to get home your wife's not doing well and he rushed home just in time to see his wife and mom die on the same day at his house Jeez. yeah um so needless to say that was uh crushing and he dealt with it in a formative and interesting way he basically just bolted um, well, actually, no, he he originally just went back to work, wouldn't talk about it. Anyone who brought it up to him or tried to offer condolences, he just he just wasn't having it. Didn't want to hear about it. He didn't want to talk about it. He just kind of went on with his day, I imagine, like like an automatic zombie kind of a thing, you know. And then he went out and became a ranchman in North Dakota, um, in Medora, North Dakota. He went and bought a ranch, which was kind of a common investment thing in those days. There were the early cowboy days. And rich guys would go out and buy a bunch of cattle, and they would they would uh, become ranchmen. Cattle industry was booming back then with the advent of the railroads, where you can move beef quick and beef quick enough to get back to the East Coast markets from like Texas, you know, cattle farms and stuff. So now it created this booming cattle industry. He went and bought into that whole thing, bought a ranch, brought a couple guys out to start ranching cattle in North Dakota, and. He was this like squeaky ass Harvard snob right out there in North Dakota, as you can picture the early West in cowboy days. He stuck out like a sore thumb wearing glasses and uh, he was made fun of quite a bit, but he proved himself to be this super rough and tough guy, not like physically tough, but mentally tough who could endure anything. And sleeping in the open under, you know, rains and bad weather and just chasing cattle, living in the saddle for fucking 30 hours at a time or whatever, like super gritty. And he eventually earned the respect of these hardcore cowboys. Like, hey, this four-eyed city boy Harvard snob is actually kind of tough. And uh yeah. built a reputation for himself. Um, there was one cool story where some cowboy was talking shit on his glasses inside a saloon or whatever. And uh, the guy essentially was just standing over him while Teddy was sitting. And uh, Teddy just laid him out, knocked him out cold with one punch. Uh And everyone was really surprised. And he had a really modest response to it. He just said, like, uh, yeah, the guy made the mistake of standing too close to me with his heels together. Uh, That's why it happened that way. Mm -hmm. So he didn't take a lot of credit or act like a tough guy. He was just like, yeah, the guy made a mistake. He was too close and his feet were together. So I laid him out and that's, uh, that's how that worked out.
1: It was pretty cool. So he's kind of witty, uh, a good debatesman, definitely up for a challenge. Um, sounds like if you tell him he can't do something, he's going to prove you the exact opposite. Uh, Yeah, all that. Yeah, all
0: that. And he, he also did very witty, uh, also a little bit self-deprecating. He always had this great way of uh, speaking or writing about himself where he would highlight his weaknesses or shortcomings in a way that made him relatable, likable, but still highlighted his strengths. So he was able to boast modestly or self-deprecatingly. And that was a useful political tool in later years, Um, which I think anyone likes someone who's
1: self-deprecating, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah, I have trouble tying my shoes, but it's just because I'm so much of a genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: Well he would talk about his uh his failures, you know, so he would just be like, Hey, you know, uh um Oh gosh, man, like having an asthma attack while running up a hill in the badlands of North Dakota or whatever, and he would just, you know, kinda hey, the other guys who are with me, they ran on ahead and I had to catch up the next day or whatever, like, hey, I couldn't keep up. Um, but by telling that story it shows that he's A, human and b gritty enough to not just give up and turn around and go home he continued on on his own and eventually caught up with his group
1: right so he was less tough than the guys but very gritty to to stick with it it's a, it's refreshing to hear somebody uh talk about that you know talk about themselves um yeah in a in a light way or just mm-hmm. ha- having being able to inflect on their own thing cuz you know you we've all met people before in the past where it's just like, they, they can't hear, they don't look at themselves at all. Right. You know, and and eventually you're like, you just want to hear something negative or just something self deprecating at some point.
0: Yeah. Nothing's more annoying than someone who's boastful. Right. That just talks about how great they are, the things they did. Oh, I said this. And they always make themselves sound uh, infallible and, and um, totally well thought out and put together. And no one really wants to hear that. No one wants to hear how great you are. Um, but if you're able to combine conveying that you're great or did something well while still being self-deprecating, so you're, you're endearing yourself to a person while you're still painting a picture of, of, um, of doing something good, then that's like double greatness. And he was able to use that as a useful tool in self-promoting for uh, political reasons later on in life. He really mastered that, um, which was a cool a cool character building kind of a thing that he did, um, or building of his own character, I guess, like creating the, the story of Teddy Roosevelt. He did a lot of that. He wrote a lot. He wrote books. He wrote history books. He wrote, uh, history of the war of 1812. Um, he, while he was a ranchman in North Dakota, he wrote, um, hunting trips of a ranchman and another book that, uh, I've read some of those. They're actually really, really great. So he was on his own, just, just a great writer. And, even if he had never become president, the things he wrote would have lived on as as good pieces of literature. That, that's um, pretty
1: cool. I've always respected people that have had the tenacity to uh, to write a book. You know, uh, yeah, I can yeah. barely. Like, I finish love reading a book. books. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, no, I love reading books, and I have this fantasy of one day writing something. But the idea of compiling enough information and then putting it together into an interesting story is overwhelming to me honestly and i have a huge amount of respect for people who can do that and trying I feel to feel like i
1: would
0: yeah. i feel like i would get lost in the details if i cap if i if i tackled a subject and tried to gather all the details that i can find about it and then compile that into a concise interesting story and that sounds like a lot i'm really really in awe of people who can do
1: that well yeah because you can always poke a hole anytime i write something i can always poke a hole in it kind of like after i wrote it and i'm like well that's not entirely correct so yeah, I feel like oh, yeah, I would yeah. just go back through and just read my book and just criticize the hell out of it. I'm sure I feel that's like it, what writers it, do. I
0: feel like it would never be done. Yeah. And then like a guy like David McCullough, he turns history, which for a lot of people, it's a lot of work just to compile data and turn that into a story where you're saying, OK, here's what happened. Teddy Roosevelt was born here. He grew up. He did this. He had this success. He had this failure. And, and then he died. Um, doing that is hard enough. But doing what David McCullough does and turning like nonfiction history into a narrative history, it reads like a novel. Like it feels like it's a story, um, and it's still all historically accurate. He's he's giving you history in this in this super well packaged narrative. That uh, it, it's this next level of writing that I I don't uh, I'm just in awe of it. I think it's incredible. It's a joy to read. And uh um so so that's my first recommendation. I could talk about this book forever, but I'll cut it off there. It's incredible, go read it. It's all about the early years of Teddy Roosevelt. So again, it's called Mornings on Horseback: The Story of an Extraordinary Family, A Vanished Way of Life, and the Unique Child Who Became Theodore Roosevelt by David McCullough. And I like the audiobook version. I love audiobooks. I read paper books, but I have way more time to dedicate to listening to books while I'm driving than I do to read paper books at my house with my kids running around. So I do a lot of audiobooks, and this one is voiced by the great Nelson Runger, one of the best audiobook narrators out there. So go listen to mornings on horseback by David McCullough. And I highly recommend the audiobook version by Nelson Runger.
1: Yeah, that that's um, appealing to me because there's such a difference between the people that read these books. Sometimes I, I just, if they, they don't have too much, uh, uh, inflection in their voice like i i just lose interest you
0: know oh yeah so no it's it's crucial to have a good narrator not just a good narrator but one that matches the type of book it is like i've I've had some that are telling a story that's thoughtful and historical or whatever but the tone of the reader is too grave like ah he would be good for like a war novel but he's not good for you know this um But I have also had the thing, like you said, where they're just unlistenable, where they sound like a robot reading auto text or something. There's no inflection. There's no soul. uh, The way I put it is they're either connected to the content or they're not. And if they're connected to the content, they're conveying what's being written really listenably. And if they're not connected to it, it's unlistenable. You just can't listen to this person. Drone on. They're, They're technically saying the words, but none of the feeling or information is coming through.
1: Yeah, the the yeah exactly. The inflection carries the entire feeling yeah. with it. That's not uh, there. Ne- uh, Nelson
0: Runger is one of these guys that is so great that sometimes when I'm shopping for a new audiobook, I'll just click on Nelson Runger and just see like what has he read. I don't even care if it's well written. If he's reading
1: it, it's 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 good. He's great. You know which one struck me like that, not to get carried away off this, but the um Tim Ferriss <laughs> Ferris book uh, the four four hour work week the guy that oh. narrated that man that was like amazing okay you should okay i'm gonna let you talk about it all i'm gonna say about
0: the four hour work week is it was life-changing you recommended that to me um i had never heard of tim Ferriss. i'd never heard of the book you told me hey you would actually really like this book called the four hour work week and uh bought it listened to it because that narrator is incredible and it was life changing. Why don't you talk about that one off the top of your head with no with no advance notice?
1: Yeah, no. Uh, so, yeah, the four hour work week. I you know, I have a, I have some mixed feelings about it. Now, overall, I had it, it was really a good eye opener on just life in general, and mm-hmm. certainly Tim Ferriss. Like he doesn't just talk the talk; he walks the walk, and sure. and that's the amazing part about it is that he actually puts into practice what it is that he tells in this book like so his, his whole thing really is kind of like, if I was going to sum it up, you know he doesn't uh he looks at his time as being the most valuable asset in his life. yeah, which let's face it, it is. and you know he equates how much money you make to how much time you're spending making that money. if you're mm-hmm. working 80 hours a week. And you're making 150 thousand dollars a year. Uh, it it may be better to uh, take a manager position at a restaurant and work, you know, uh, 15 hours a week at 25 thousand. You know, kind of equating right. that to that. But yeah, it all factors into this this kind of
0: like quality of life equation.
1: Yeah, and he he gives you some good tools in there too, where um, where you do like writing exercises about uh, what is it. Um, do you remember those, uh, Uh some of the things like what it is that you want? Um, yeah. And you write Um, that down.
0: Well, yeah. And your fears. I, I won't remember it exactly the way that, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, fears. So yeah, he would have you like write out a fear and he would have you say like, okay, so I'm afraid of starting my own business or, or I'm afraid of quitting my job to start my own business. And he would have you like really describe what you're afraid of. Like, I'm afraid of not having guaranteed income. Okay, well, what would that look like? Oh, I'm afraid of not being able to pay my rent uh, if my new business doesn't fail. Okay, now uh, really identifying each of these fears and figuring out like, okay, if that were to happen, like if I was to be fired tomorrow, what would it look like? What would I do? Oh, I've got some savings. Oh, I guess I could sell this. Oh, I guess I can move some money out of my 401k. Like if I got fired tomorrow, I wouldn't get kicked out of my house. I could do this. Like, okay, now that's an option. Now it's less scary. It's more of a consideration. Um, You're more weighing factors now than just fearing the unknown. So by
1: defining your fears, they become less uh, vague and scary. And there's a cost of inaction as Mm -hmm. well. I think he throws in there. And, um, you know, I'll tell you where the mixed feelings come in. And it's not, it has nothing to do with The book on its own stands on its own. And it's great. I I will sometimes uh, read a book like that. I get inspired and I and I feel great when I'm reading it and I'm like gung ho. I'm like I'm gonna do this, and um and it does inspire me to to start something new. I think I when I remember reading his book, I was starting a new mm-hmm. kind of uh, sequel business on the side, and you know it, it petered out. But uh, that's my fault. Um, and he, here here's the thing for me. So he he talks about kind of. Uh, spinning up side businesses or businesses that don't require uh, a muse. I think is what he calls it. I think it was a muse. He calls it a muse. Call it a side
0: hustle, a side business, whatever. He calls it a muse. And his whole goal is create something that, or or a lot of what he talks about is like create something that's automated and self-sustaining and outsourcing so that you are personally dedicating as few hours as possible
1: to the running of this business. And he has people who have read previous versions of his book, cause this has been in print for a while and they mm-hmm. come back and they tell the stories of what they do. They say, thank you. You know, I, I've read your book. It inspired me to quit my job yeah. uh, with my kids and just travel the world. Yeah. Uh, thank you. You know, and it's and inspiring. It's totally inspiring. Uh, I guess. So it's really not a criticism of the book. It's me, like with me in order for me to put that book into play, you know i feel like i need to put myself in a more compromising situation cuz through the whole time where i was trying to do this i kept my job at the same time but i'm sure. kind of lazy enough to where like if i have money coming in i won't hustle as much over here you know so oh yeah and, and i, I yeah. make and a that's, good and income. that's an
0: important thing to identify about your own nature is i'm the same way where i'm much more va- motivated by necessity yeah. and i if i'm yeah Uh, without necessity, it's, it's, I don't know, sometimes I guess I can motivate myself without necessity, but I'm with you on that. If, if I've got my job and I'm comfortable and I'm kind of like, Hey, you know, I mean, things are pretty good. Then I'm less motivated to really, um, get active. Uh, but what I love about the book is it's, it's, it's a little bit dated. Like you said, it's been in print a while. So some of the specific tools that he recommends are maybe not around anymore or newer tools have been invented, whether they're apps or actual like physical tools. The, the things he's recommending sometimes are a little bit outdated, but the theory of it all is totally applicable across, um, across time. So if he's talking about outsourcing, like maybe your new business requires um, customer response on an email or putting things in a box and mailing it, or printing something, or whatever is required to continue the, the needs of this business, a big part of what he talks about is is automating and outsourcing a lot of that stuff. Um, maybe your profit margin is lower by not doing everything yourself, but your quality of life is higher by having more hours to do whatever you truly do love doing. And I love that he focuses not on making these mews or side businesses something that you truly love, Like, it's cool to chase a business doing something you love. But this is more focused on, like, how do you just earn money and gain freedom? And uh, I think one of the things he recommends is pick something you know something about. Don't just go, like, what's worth money? I will do that. But by picking something you know something about, um, you're more likely to have a specific affinity for it uh, or some expertise And one that really stuck out, because you're right, there's a lot of examples of people that do little successful muses or side businesses in his book that are thanking him for for helping them succeed or find it, is a guy who um, sells French shirts. Do you remember that one? No, I don't. So this guy uh, went to France and realized that A lot of the dudes are wearing these quintessential fucking cartoon character French shirts, which is essentially just like a a boating shirt, like a blue and white striped shirt that's really quintessential in France. And uh, like I picture like a like a like a French uh, boatman or whatever. But anyway, if you see someone wearing this shirt, you go like, that's a French shirt. And this guy uh, found someone who sells them in France set up a thing to where they will be delivered to his home. I believe it was in New York or somewhere in the U S he set up a website that was literally just French shirts. We don't sell a whole line of clothing, not all kinds of different shit. All he was selling was French shirts and he automated the process by having some sort of an order order fulfillment company, um, fulfill the orders, take all the orders, put them in a box, slap a label on them and mail them out. And he literally did nothing. All he did is ordered shirts from France they, they arrived, someone else put them in boxes that he sold on his website, and he introduced these French-style shirts to an American market and literally had 100% freedom. He did nothing to maintain the business um, on a day-to-day basis. So he created a profitable business selling one simple item that he, I don't know if he had some expertise, but he noticed a market opportunity for it, sold one style shirt, made a killing and someone else was doing all of the
1: order fulfillment, all the day-to-day work like brilliant. Yeah. And then uh, he had his story too. I I thought his story was, was really clever. Remember he was Was a a, supplement. um, Yeah. When he was working at a sales company where he was like a low rung employee, a low rung salesperson there and they, he didn't get paid that much. And you know, one of the things that he noticed was like, Hey, I call these people all day long, and the re- receptionists are the ones that reject the call for me getting to the CTO. So he's like, if all I, if all I do is wait until five o'clock when the receptionist goes home, I'm making way more money than everybody here, and all I have to do is just work a, a, an hour or two, you know, before in the morning yeah. and then late at night. And uh, he pitched that, and of course they were just like, "Yeah, you're a loser." I think. He, it, yeah. 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 His, his pitch is, what if I only work
0: two hours, but it's between five and seven,
1: you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't know if that's the details, but that's essentially what he's saying. Yeah. So he's this strategic out of the box, uh, efficient thinker. And, uh, that's why he is rich as shit and has tons of freedom and travels the world and gets to do all sorts of fun stuff because he doesn't just adhere to the standard nine to five time suck.
1: So while he worked there during the day, that's when he he found the vitamin business, and mm. I think he was uh, he purchased was purchasing vitamins from a supplier and then reselling them. Right. And as he was going through that business, he ended up realizing he's working like eighty hours a week, and he was he was making good money. I think uh, upwards of forty or fifty thousand a month, but he was a slave to his business. So he started going the other direction and finding efficiencies on ways to automate some of the things that he does uh, by hiring receptionists, uh, getting um, people to make their own decisions. And then he went away from and he, he he flew away for a year. And I think he had like no contact with the business at all, like once he started to get it up and running and it ran on its own. And he said it actually became even more profitable when he got out of the way of it. Uh, that's an interesting revelation is, yeah, when you
0: think that nobody but you can do these day-to-day minute little uh, activities and then you find out that uh, the ship doesn't crash on the shores if you take your hands off the wheel. Um, what a great realization that must be that he he his business benefited by him getting out of the way. Um, I mean, I think we would all enjoy some sort of a revenue generating opportunity to create stable money and uh, give us the freedom to do whatever we want, wherever we want, completely free us. And even if it's not crazy money like what Tim Ferriss has earned, but like the shirt guy, I don't know how much he's making, but even if it's just a modest amount of money, um, enough to pay your bills or, or enough to supplement and give you some extra money, even if you were making $500 or $1,000 a month or $5,000 a month or whatever, you don't have to be a crazy rich guy or girl or person, but creating something that generates money doesn't take a lot of your time, like that's the idea of this four hour work week book. And, and it's not like, Hey, here's everything you need to do to only work four hours. It's just a theory. It's just like, Hey, think about how many hours you're putting in versus how much your money you're taking home and apply that equation to what you do. Um, and, and taking your heart out of it, I think, is a, an interesting aspect because so much focus is put on do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. Uh, if you find something you love, then you'll you'll not hate going to work every day. Like, that's cool. But if we just require money to pay the electric bill and rent, then why do you really have to love what you do? I mean, that's one way to look at at, at the necessar- the necessity of money. But another way to look at it would be, okay, if I have to check the box of earning money, how do I check that box with the least with the least sacrifice of my time as possible? And what a neat thing to look at to say like, okay, maybe this French shirt guy didn't love French shirts and it didn't light him up and make him happy to mail people French shirts. But by automating the process and finding this niche, he was able to go do whatever he loved well, his French
1: shirts were selling like hotcakes. Yeah. No, it's a uh, uh-huh. it's it's definitely a, a an important one of the most important points that I think um you want to pay attention to in your life, you know. You don't how how are you spending your time and can you make money without spending a lot of time so you can do what you love. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't have to be a crazy
0: amount of money. I like that way of looking at it too. Maybe you have a few of these muses, maybe you can think of a couple or whatever. Or maybe you keep your job and you just set up one of these muses to supplement and give you extra money or whatever. But just thinking about it that way is a is a is a neat um a neat thing, and this book outlines it really really well and it's motivating like you said. Um I think it's one of those books where if you were to listen to that book or read that book once a year, it will maintain your motivation and keep you thinking along these lines because it's so easy to become complacent and autopilot. Uh, And then something like this, a book like this can really make you go like, God, yeah, why don't I do that thing where where I sell dog food or, you know, something not super glamorous per se, but just something doable that you know something about and something that generates money without a lot of time investment. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah, no, it's uh,
1: yeah, it's great. It is a great I,
0: book. I'm glad you brought that book up. That is that that book for me was life changing. And I'm certainly not only working four hours a week. I haven't applied everything that the book tells me about, but it did permeate my way of thinking, and I do look at things that way. And uh, and uh, it's it's a super useful investment of time to listen to and enjoy to listen to. And then it introduced me to Tim Ferriss just as a person and his. Uh, his stream of content he creates is super interesting. The guy is really cool. I'm on, like, his newsletter and, and all these other things, and he's just a cool person if you don't know who Tim Ferriss is and you're interested in working for yourself or any kind of financial freedom or improvement of life or any of that kind of shit. He's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. All right, so 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. Right on, man. He's got other cool books, too. Uh, the 4-Hour Body, where he talks a lot about working out, diet. Um He even gives like a bunch of sex tips in the four-hour body, which is a little off-topic, but interesting to say the least. Uh, Then he's got another one, the four-hour chef, which he talks a lot about cooking and that sort of thing. I don't know how much that really has to do with just four hours, but I think that just became his thing as he's the four-hour guy. Everything has to be in four hours.
1: Yeah, and like you said, too, (laughs) he did a lot of A-B tests on titles and uh, uh oh yeah that's when, yeah that's when interesting you found one that works it's like i think he's he's not stupid he's going to continue to use it
0: oh man yeah yeah that's right yeah he did a lot of testing he would even test with like google adwords and invest money in google adwords campaigns and try and track a few different ways of like wording or designing or targeting google adwords campaigns to figure out which one worked the best and then he would pour all his money into that one But that investment of experimentation really paid off in efficiency because maybe what you think is going to work isn't necessarily what works best. So he's very open-minded about trying a bunch of different things to see which one does work best and then running with that one.
1: What I thought was clever, this is one of the brilliant things I pulled from the book, but before he would create a product, he would offer the product for sale. And like you're saying, I think he would advertise for it, whatnot, see how much traffic it gets. And then you would have a button to go by and then so you go buy. people would go by and there's nothing there because he didn't spend the time to create that content yet. Oh, I like that. Yeah, he does set up dummy sites
0: to gauge interest level. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then he's so like, oh, look, I would made in... this much money. but Yeah, so like say it's that French shirts idea. He would go out and buy a Google ad campaign that's like, hey, buy these French shirts here. Click a site, uh, click a link. It goes to a site and the site's like, hey, coming soon. We're not selling French shirts yet. But you know that that ad is generating clicks. Yep. And then you're able to track that to say, hey, if I was selling a shirt to half the people who hit the website. Here's what that would look like. Is this a viable business model? Does it make sense to even start it? Yeah, now I'm going to sell French shirts on the site. But he totally invests some money into testing the business before he ever like truly invests and builds the business. That's that's smart.
1: Yes, so many people just don't do that. I, I didn't do that in the past too. And it's just like, hey, that's the first thing you do.
0: Yeah. Figure out if there's
1: a market for it before you spend all your time making it.
0: Totally, like literally test the market instead of just go, I think there's a need for this. I think I'll build it, design it, create it, market it, and then hopefully there is a need, like I assume there is. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Four hour work week, Tim Ferris. Fucking yeah. great one, D. Glad you yeah. brought that one up. Yeah, yeah. All right. So my next one is a book by Jared Diamond. Uh Jared Diamond is a super interesting guy. He's uh, a professor of geography at UCLA, and he is like an expert in a few different fields that come together in some really neat books. But uh, he's an expert in physiology, evolutionary biology and uh, biogeography, which I don't entirely know what all those are. But yeah. essentially, this book is um, looking at evolution in, in a really cool way um so the book's called the third chimpanzee the evolution and future of the human animal by jared diamond i listened to an audiobook version voiced by rob shapiro who this is the first book i've ever listened to read by rob shapiro and it will not be the last he is absolutely awesome as soon as i started listening i'm like this fucking guy rob shapiro dude he's great oh, okay um so this book is the first of six books that jared diamond has written uh, i was published in 1991 uh, in his early 50s, which I really like. Um, That means that he has spent a long, long time in the field working as a scientist, doing his thing, writing like like technical papers or industry papers, not necessarily for public consumption, but living in the scientific world um, until he decided to write something for the general public in his early 50s. That's kind of cool. That's pretty late in life.
1: Yeah, he's got something to say. You know, or, he does, or, man. Yeah, I, I believe that more than uh, some blowhard that I, might be in his I, 20s right about... I think about, so,
0: right? You know. Especially in this line. I mean, it's, it's evolutionary biology. Um, it can easily be boring and overly scientific. And most of, I guess, what I think of when I think of evolutionary biology is like, okay... um, you know early humans jaw changed shape around this era and they began to walk more upright around this era and and tracking our evolution as a timeline and as a scientific um uh series of events but the perspective that Jared Diamond takes in this book is looking at not just how we evolved but why we evolved in certain ways and maybe why we didn't evolve in other ways, and he's got some really cool things that he touches on, so I'll just touch on a few. The first one is comparing us or relating to um, our relation to chimps, and uh, genetically, we are closest relation to chimpanzees, and the reason it's called the third chimpanzee is there are two types of chimpanzee. The common chimp, which is obviously the common chimp. And then there's a pygmy chimp, which is a very small percentage that only lives in the Congo. Um, so they weren't even considered like a separate species or or type of chimp until like the 1920s or whatever. Um, so there's the common chimp, there's a pygmy chimp, and us. We're the third chimpanzee. Oh, okay. And right up until the 1980s, there were... Uh, debates on whether or not we were even related to chimps or how how related to chimps we were. And then in the eighties they were able to really like figure out DNA and test DNA, and they revealed that we are ninety-eight percent identical to chimp DNA. Yeah, ninety-eight percent.
1: That's up there.
0: Every way that we differ from chimps is only two percent of our DNA makeup. And we differ from chimps a lot, but we're also super similar to chimps. Uh, And this book looks at evolution of all sorts of different species, not just humans and chimps. um, But it starts off that way. And that was just a shocking thing to think about for me, that we are 98% identical in DNA to chimpanzees. Like, wow. Um, He goes on to say how we are similar but different to other uh, apes like gorillas. Gorillas um some of these other ones and and an interesting fact how humans actually have larger testes larger balls than gorillas which you know a 600 pound gorilla has smaller balls than us kind of kind of cool like we feel pretty good about that um yeah, but our balls are actually smaller than chimp balls so don't get all excited um <laughs> chimp's smaller than that. us hey, and their balls are assuming? bigger
1: hey I, i'm gonna go measure <laughs> those balls today hey you know it's
0: not all it's not all fucking uh book tours when you're uh when you're Jared Diamond, sometimes I
1: guess you're out there with a uh, with a ball ruler. Well, I'll tell you what, you have pretty big balls if you're going to measure the balls of a chimp to begin with. Oh, I would say you got
0: big balls if you're measuring the balls of a gorilla, and then telling him, "Hey, your balls are smaller than mine, 800 pound gorilla." Yeah, you you got some you got some balls. Yeah. Uh, but but what they equate that to is okay. Why are what why the difference in ball size? Why are our balls bigger than it than a ape that's three times our size? And it comes down to frequency of sex. Uh, gorillas don't have sex very often. Humans have sex pretty often, and chimps have sex really fucking often. So the more frequent sex behavior causes chimps to have bigger balls. We have medium balls, and gorillas who have less sex have smaller balls. So oh, totally okay. makes sense. It's less uh, it's less surprising when you when you break it down to uh, behavioral reason. Um, Another thing he touch, touches on is statistically why we choose a mate, like why we choose a wife or even someone we're sexually attracted to. And there's a lot of factors that come into play. Um, they tested tons and tons of different couples, like thousands of different couples. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, data studying why we choose a mate. And there's all kinds of interesting things like um, religious. Uh, connection like we we believe in the same thing religiously uh, we believe in the same thing politically um, those sorts of things uh, those are pretty high on the scale but one of the highest things on the scale of why we choose a mate is length of middle finger and length of earlobes. what statistically undeniable one of the most important reasons that humans choose a sexual partner is is the length of the middle finger and earlobes? Okay. So, um, tell me about your wife's middle finger and earlobes, Derek. Have you have boy. you uh, given a lot of thought to this?
1: Yeah, you know, I can't say that I have. Uh, that's very no. interesting. I I did hear before, I think on Discovery Channel, probably quite some time ago, is that we're we seem to be attracted to another mate that has the counterpart to our immune system. So where our immune systems are deficient, we seem to be attracted to people that have um, those non-deficiencies in their immune system. And yeah, I don't know how no, that relates to the earlobe and- It's it's directly related. So,
0: so okay. what I'm driving at is the difference between, okay, uh, causes of evolution, where Darwin uh, talked a lot about natural selection like, um, evolving based on, uh, improved design for like better survival or whatever. So like, uh, we, we evolved a certain type of teeth because it helped us eat food. And the people who had teeth that were designed in this newer way, uh, ate more or digested better and they lived more. So they went on to have babies and that's how evolution works. Right. Um, so yeah, he calls these beneficial traits. So there's a benefit to having legs of a certain design or a brain of a certain size. And and all species evolve to proliferate beneficial traits because the animals with these variations of design that uh, have these beneficial traits live longer, have more babies, and those babies end up having those beneficial traits. And that's how um, we constantly improve, improve and evolve, right? So natural selection based on beneficial traits. The other thing that he talks about that seems to have a lot more weight than I ever realized is sexual selection. And he even goes into why different races in different parts of the world look a certain way. And there's a common assumption that I certainly subscribed to that was like, okay, people with darker skin, like black people, typically come from more equator-close regions. So they come from hotter places. So something about living in a hotter place close to the equator causes people to have darker skin um people that live in colder places end up having lighter skin uh like asian people are built a little more compact to retain heat africans are built a little more tall and slender to release heat because there's more heat there uh all of that seemed to make sense to me as a layman on a on a on a surface level right yeah he goes into Sexual selection makes much more sense because there's all kinds of contradictions to everything I just said. There's there's short, compact people in uh, uh, like places near the equator Uh, and there's tall, skinny people in places that are cold. So there's all kinds. He gives it really he gives specific examples of contradictions to this to say, OK, if that were true, what about these people over here who didn't evolve in that way? Why? Why didn't they evolve? They're in a cold, snowy place. Why aren't they what you're talking about? Why aren't they short and compact? Um, OK, he, he, he basically uh, sinks that boat by by deep by by uh, specific example. So I won't go into that, but he totally eradicates that. Uh, assumption that i had and that a lot of people have that geography dictates your um skin color height build all that kind of stuff he goes into all sorts of examples that support sexual selection and it's purely just what a society deems attractive and say in in certain areas you know uh, longer neck would be attractive or taller skinnier would be attractive more of those people are are Digging each other, having babies, and then their babies are more likely to have the longer neck, taller, skinnier, or whatever, all those different physical traits um being being uh, passed on through sexual selection, not necessarily natural selection, that these evolutionary traits aren't dictated by survival or the geography, they're more dictated by sexual preference,
1: yeah, and that sexual preference has something to do with security. I would imagine because certainly can't equate it to a neck, but um, a strong man in a wilderness area where you need to hunt to survive, I would think would be more attractive than a uh, computer nerd in the middle of the Sahara Desert.
0: No? Yes. So there's always an element of, of, of necessity, natural selection in that sense, where it's just like, OK, you know, the guy who is fast enough not to get eaten by a tiger uh, is going to go on and have more babies. Therefore, humans are are a little better at getting away from tigers and and uh, that sort of thing. So there well, is and, totally and you're more that.
1: attracted. The, a woman would be you more are. attracted
0: to that, too. Right. Totally. Um, but then the weird little nuances, like the the super high importance placed on length of middle finger and earlobes, is obviously there's no uh, there's no survival benefit to the length of your earlobe, but it turns into uh, this sexual selection pattern where it just becomes well, and he explains it way better than than I am. I'm just kind of touching on it, but it. It gives, it gives some insight into why we pick a mate and we, we look for something that we see in ourselves and another possible mate and that sort of thing. And there's this similarity of my middle finger and the length of the middle finger of women who I find attractive or possible sexual partners. Uh, middle fingers and earlobes tend to be very similar. Also, eye proximity was another one. The The distance of your eyes, if someone's eyes are closer set or wider, further apart, um, that kind of thing can really play a role in whether or not you find someone attractive. Uh, and it all has to do with similarity of your own eye proximity. You're more likely to be attracted to someone who has a similar eye distance or eye proximity proportion to yourself than a totally different one. Weird, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can, I can kind of see that-ish. Um, now it's like, well, let me put it this way. Have you ever seen a couple and they don't look like they fit as a couple? I, we all uh-huh. have, right? Yeah. And it's and, hard to
0: put your finger on, like, yeah, they just don't strike me as they should be together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I don't and know I, why. And then you see other couples where you're like, they're totally a couple, they belong together. Yeah. And, um, you can't put your finger on it like you're saying sometimes, but it's there's just something to that. And maybe when you get down and you start measuring all these little uh, specifics of the middle finger and the earlobes and the eye width and stuff, maybe that, that comes into play then.
0: Yeah, because seriously, dude, uh, no one on a conscious level is looking at a chick at a bar just going like, damn, dude, check out the length of her middle finger. Look look at those earlobes.
1: Ooh, that neck. Yeah. Oh man, that
0: (laughs) neck. Yeah. Like it, it just, you're not, you're not aware of that on a conscious level, but apparently we are totally noticing that because it plays this monstrously important role in who we end up picking as a mate. Weird, right? It is. It's interesting. Uh, he goes on to talk about other things like, uh, the origin of human language, art and agriculture, three things that we consider to be unique to the human species, um, part of what differentiates us from from the other species makes us uh, a special species, somehow more, more special than other animals or different than other animals. But he goes on to poke holes in all those ideas also and gives a shitload of examples of animal language. And obviously, like, not just on the level of like, oh, yeah, whales are obviously talking to each other. Or dolphins are obviously talking to each other. They're making noise. They're communicating. That's not surprising to anyone, right? Yeah. But he... Uh, goes into detail about how they are actually structured languages based on um, species or even just regional tribe. So one of the ways that he talks about testing this is a group of monkeys or apes or orangutans or chimps or I don't know, monkeys that live in a really small area instead of being really spread out. So what they did is they recorded um, noises or calls or, or things that monkeys said in this group and they noted what happened, and then they noted what monkeys did when it happened. So, like, a monkey would make a noise, and it would mean that, oh, there's a hawk flying by. And the other monkeys would, like, hide under a bush. And another call would be they would record a monkey making a call. Uh, there was a, a jaguar coming up, and all the monkeys would climb a tree to get away from the jaguar. Um, that sort of thing. Um, so a very, and then they would record these calls and then play them back to this group later on. And the monkeys would do the exact same thing. So they would play the, oh shit, it's a hawk call. All the monkeys would react in the same way. They would instantly hide in a bush or something like that. Uh, Or, oh shit, it's a jaguar call. They would play that back to the group through a recorded speaker. And then they would all do the thing that they do when there's a jaguar, they would all climb a tree. Um so it wasn't just that one one monkey was raising an alarm it was like he was literally saying hey there's a jaguar or something you know that kind of thing and they tested it in a lot of different ways and it was a pretty neat thing to listen to that it wasn't just um meaningless communication or or uh like they were actually structured words this word meant it's a
1: jaguar and all the monkeys had the same reaction I I totally resonate with that I I think as humans, we are uh, a little bit arrogant and thinking that we're the only ones that carry intelligence. Yeah, we're very arrogant, yeah. The thing is, the truth of the matter is, is that we're so arrogant, I think, we just don't see a lot of this intelligence that's innate in all these different species. And, you know, you might say like, oh, well, you know, we have self-awareness. I'm not so sure that self-awareness isn't a trait that is uh, in... And other animals as well um maybe you can't measure it because they could care less if they see themselves in a mirror uh but you know i I really do think that there's so much more intelligence that we don't understand but and it's really just kind of an arrogance thing totally um
0: absolutely it's this thing where we're special and we're the only ones doing some of these and that's exactly what he's poking holes in and giving examples that you can't you can't refute where language, um, he's proving scientifically that other animals have specific languages, and I think in that case they they identified like eight words or eight specific calls that meant specific things that generated a specific response, and it would be replicated any time they played the same call through the same group. Like these were identified phrases, or or they were very, they were they were universally understood words, which is interesting. Also, they went through. Uh, art um and we think of art like painting drawing all that kind of stuff as uniquely human but it's not at all um and that was all kind of new to me where they have all these examples of elephants painting you you put a paintbrush in the trunk of an elephant and they're painting pictures and uh it's viewed as a novelty but it's it's indisputable that they are artistic and there's even art where people testing this would show it to a group of, like, art students or art critics or whatever, and they would say, like, hey, uh, tell us who you think painted this and what, what you think they're trying to convey. And in every instance, or he gave several instances where this whole group of, like, experienced artists looked at a painting uh, by an elephant and, A correctly identified the gender of the elephant every time. They could tell if it was a male or a female. They didn't know it was an elephant painting it. The art group was just like, oh, this was painted by a woman. And the woman was distraught and trying to convey intensity or whatever, and this and that. And they would give all these, like, art critic responses. And then they were told, uh, yeah, an elephant painted this. Uh And I'm sure that created a little bit of embarrassment in the room. But one interesting thing that uh, they found in all of these experiments was... They always thought it was by a human, but they also correctly identified the gender. Um, These art students were able to tell that the painting by an elephant was done by a female. And it was, but it was a female elephant. Weird,
1: right? That is. That's that's super weird. So cool uh, shit
0: like that. There's there's other examples with chimps doing art. There's these bower birds that I had never heard of that create homes, like nesting homes, that literally... If you were just to walk by one in a jungle, you would think it was built by men. It's a large room furnished and decorated, but they're built by birds. And male bowerbirds build these things to impress females. And then female bowerbirds cruise through these little bowerbird neighborhoods of incredible homes that are furnished and decorated and colored. And they pick the most awesome one and then they they mate with that male. Oh, wow. Crazy, right? yeah
1: that is that's that no, was neat. totally new to me
0: had never heard of Bowerbirds, birds but uh he gives all these incredible examples that he's learned through his scientific studies in in places like new guinea and all over the world where he's out there studying evolution and um biogeography and uh he's also a bird watcher so all these cool little expertises that that he's practiced over his life have culminated into this really wide-ranging perspective of evolution and uh he's uniquely able to bring all these together into a book like this. And it's just incredible. It is a fun read. He tells a story in a very relatable, easy to understand way. Like he's a super heady scientist, but he sounds like he's just a smart friend telling you about it. Uh Uh, It's written so well and so enjoyably and so um, easy to understand that a layman like me can totally grasp everything he's saying. He gives great examples. Um, Another thing he talks about is Why humans use drugs, uh, which is an interesting question I've never really thought about. Like, why would someone, A, choose to do something that is negative to their own health? Why would you choose to do something that makes you weaker? Evolutionary speaking, like, why would we do something purposely self-destructive? And B, why is doing something purposely self-destructive attractive to the other sex, is it attractive to the other sex? I wouldn't think that it. It may not. is like not on a not on a conscious level, but the same way that cigarette ads use um, sex appeal to sell their product. If it wasn't perceived as attractive to see a guy smoking, they wouldn't show guys smoking as an attractive thing. So, why why would females see a guy like smoking and go like, "Oh man, he's a bad boy"? Yeah, I'm attracted to that, or even. Like chicks who think guys who do drugs are cool or attractive in some way. Like why, why would that be an attractive thing to do something detrimental to your body physically, evolutionary speaking? And he gives a lot of really cool examples. I'm not going to go into them, but Daddy that is really really... Uh, well, I'll go into it. It's... Okay. The example he gives is a gazelle running from a lion. Now, a gazelle is faster than a lion, and a gazelle can just see a lion, run away from it, and, and get away. But gazelles conserve the energy of having to run away from a lion every time by flaunting their ability to run away from a lion every time, hoping to deter the lion from ever trying to eat it and chase it basically saving it the energy or hassle of having to run away. And they deter the lion from even trying to chase it by showing the lion that it's so fast and it can outrun them so easily that it's willing to hop about um, dangerously. Mm, And I can leap around and flaunt and play in front of you, um, showing you that I'm so unconcerned about you chasing and killing me because I'm so much faster than I can afford to fuck around and play and jump in front of you. And the lion's like, "Wow, that gazelle must be so fast he's willing to fuck around in front of me. I'm not even going to try to chase him." Yeah. So it saves the lion the time of trying and it saves the gazelle the hassle of having to outrun him by flaunting uh, a weakness by saying, "Hey, look, I'm totally eatable, which is a weird thing, right? Yeah So he gives this really well play, well well put argument of it's attractive to do something. Negative to yourself because you're essentially saying like, hey, ladies, I'm so strong and robust that I could smoke cigarettes and still be fine and still be cool. I can do this toxic, um, like negative thing to myself and still be okay." And she's perceiving that as his genes are so strong that he could purposely do something bad for him and still be fine. Uh, which is a weird way to look at it,
1: right? It is. It's like uh, if I just he get, walked around town punching myself in the face.
0: Yeah, they'd be like, like, man, hey, that I'm... guy must be so strong. He can just <laughs> punch himself in the face all day. I'm, I'm really <laughs> attracted to that guy. Then he gives another example too. He, he, he relates tattoos to it. And he's saying that tattoos can be um, subconsciously attractive because a tattoo is not only saying, hey, I'm tough and I can withstand pain. But it's also saying, I'm resistant to disease. And it could be perceived as, man, that guy's got good DNA. He's not only tough, but he's also resistant to disease. Um, I like him. I want to get on the back of his Harley.
1: It's kind of like a battle scar, too, probably. Yeah. You're like, oh, look at those scars. Wow, he's been through a lot. He's, He's a survivor.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, It's an interesting psychological perspective to take on why a a flaunted defect could be attractive. And it's an interesting take on why people do drugs or why people are attracted to someone who does drugs. He gives a lot of these interesting like, huh, I never looked at it that way. That is interesting. He's got really cool perspectives on stuff. And then he gives a lot of supporting information for why he thinks that way uh he doesn't just go hey here's my theory uh take it for what it is like he gives a lot of supporting uh data um which is cool i love that stuff super fun book packed full of all kinds of things Uh, i'm just going to breeze through a few of these he talks about genocide why humans commit genocide are humans the only species who commit genocide and murder um he uh uh talks about humans unique Possession of the ability to eradicate ourselves with things like um, climate deterioration and nuclear weapons, and uh, what that means for the future of the human animal, and why we are so prone to even going down those paths, and he attacks all that from the perspective of an evolutionary scientist. Fucking interesting, endlessly interesting. Um, all packaged in a really good listen or a good read, written really well. And the audiobook is beautifully voiced by Rob Shapiro. He does a fantastic job of making this all relatable, super listenable. And uh, if any of this is interesting to you at all, I've done a very weak job of conveying the incredible ideas and information packed into The Third Chimpanzee by Jared Diamond.
1: I want to touch on just on that genocide piece right there because my assumption with that is that um, when people are kind of driven to fear, or there is kind of like a mass hysteria? Uh, another group of people can say, "Well, this is the way out of this mass hysteria," and and potentially these are the reason these are the people that are causing your fear, and they're the reason why things aren't normal and why you're uncomfortable. And that's yeah. happened before with the Salem the Salem uh, witch hunt thing totally because it it kind of if i remember right he he gives
0: an incredible breakdown of his thoughts and why he thinks this way but it's essentially why humans are prone to wanting to murder strangers basically anyone who's other than me i have a uh uh, an inherent desire to kill them and he gives a lot of interesting insight into that uh, anomaly that disturbing anomaly
1: yeah no and i i uh I bring that up because one of my fears right now is we're being driven towards that um, with our, uh, the uh, shot status, whether you got the shot or not. Um, oh, oh like yeah. Demonizing. Are you a conformist or are you not? Yeah, they're like demonized. I mean, and there's stages of that too, where um, once you get to calling those people, uh, you relate them to animals. That That's a, the next stage of the genocide right there. Scary, very scary stuff, but. Um, it's uh, potentially relatable to where we're at now, and that's one yeah. of the fears that I have. Man, man, yeah, no, it's it, this would be an interesting book. I think you would like it because you are
0: able to take his perspectives and apply them to all sorts of other human behaviors or situations, and just go like, "Oh, wow, that's a neat new way of looking at this thing that we're currently going through or have gone through in the past." Yeah, um, just an infinitely intriguing and thought provoking book. Um, Jared Diamond's written other great stuff too. He wrote a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel. That was a great book. He won the Pulitzer Prize for that book. Uh that came later on in his writing career, and maybe we'll talk about that one day. That's an awesome book. But this one, his first book, The Third Chimpanzee, fucking floored me in so many ways. Uh that um I can't recommend it enough.
1: Super yeah, interesting. and it's an
0: audio book. Check. Oh, oh, dude. I mean, Rob Shapiro does a fantastic job of voicing this book. Uh I would have listened to this book even with a mediocre uh narrator, but Rob Shapiro is um literally one of the best I've ever heard. It's the first book I've ever heard him do and I hope I hope there's a lot more by him. He's fantastic. So uh Well,
1: you have one more book now too, right? I got one more. Yeah, do you got any others you you want to throw one in there? Not really. I don't I'm I have them next right. to me, but I don't feel passionate enough about them okay. at, at the moment. All right. All right. So I am going to
0: Oh, uh, fuck. Here, give me a minute. I clicked off of it, and, uh oh, shoot. Where'd it go? Hold on. Technical difficulties. Oh. oh, no. Okay, there it is. All right. Put my microphone back in front of me here, and I'm ready to rock. All right, so this one is a totally new type of book. I've never read a book like this. You can't do it on an audiobook, or you shouldn't do it on an audiobook. This one is a um, a graphic... Graphic nonfiction, which is a fancy way of saying it's a true comic book. Um, Never heard of it. Never read a book like this. Yeah, neither have I. So apparently they're really popular in Japan. Um, I didn't didn't know that, but it's a really popular form of writing to package things into a comic book style book. Makes it really easy to digest and really easy to use visual aids to get your point across. And anyway, this was a totally new thing for me. I was like, uh, okay, fuck it. I'll give it a shot. And it was... Really fun. Really cool book. Really quick read and literally like an adult comic book. Uh, This one is called Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. It tackles the idea of immigration, uh, the pros and cons or causes and effects of different ways of approaching immigration policy from the perspective of an economist. So he doesn't necessarily go into immigration for or against as a hey is immigration the right like is is allowing unbridled open border immigration a good thing morally or a bad thing morally he's not going at it from that perspective he's saying like purely economically speaking what would be the best policy regarding immigration and he goes into all sorts of um of scenarios and the nuts and bolts of different policies and what they would mean economically um in this book which sounds like a very nerdy subject but he does such the fun job of doing it all in this graphic book in this comic book essentially that it comes to life it's easy to understand and he presents some bulletproof arguments for the benefits economically speaking of entirely open borders across the entire globe being able to come and go as any of us please full-blown open borders all over the world. And the economist, the guy who wrote it, is Brian Kaplan. Illustrations are all done by a guy named Zach Weiner-Smith. It's beautifully illustrated, totally looks like a comic book. Um, when was Brian, it made? Or when did
1: you write uh,
0: 2019, two years ago. Um, I heard about it a year after it came out. So I read it last year in uh, summer of 2020, so a year ago. Um, I... It's the kind of book you could read on a long flight. It's very quick, very easy. Um, and the topics it tackles are huge. And I love the fact that it takes a very politically charged um, uh, thing like immigration and breaks it down to purely economic levels. It, it, attacks, the, it attacks the question of uh, immigration, good or bad. In all its forms, in a purely economic way.
1: But is that and, all that uh, exists is the economy of it? There's there's other aspects to it too, right?
0: Of course, of course. He touches on those, but he's an economist. So he he's not going to sit there and go like, hey, open borders is the right thing to do because everyone's human, man, and we should all just learn to get along. Um, there's some of that undertone, of course, but he really says like, okay, what if we were to open up all the borders? Here's what it would look like. Here's what free, open borders and, and unbridled immigration would look like. If any of us could live anywhere, uh, here's what it would look like economically. And he just presents some really, really neat arguments. Um, the, the, the description on the back of the book is, um, American policymakers have long been locked in a heated battle over whether, how many, and what kind of immigrants to allow to live and work in the country. Those in favor of welcoming more immigrants often cite humanitarian reasons, while those in favor of more restrictive laws argue the need to protect native citizens. Economist Brian Kaplan adds a new compelling perspective to the immigration debate. He argues that opening all borders could eliminate absolute poverty worldwide and usher in a booming worldwide economy, greatly benefiting humanity. Uh, Yeah, that all sounds like peaches and cream, right? Like, okay, hippie, like, yeah, we just open up the borders everywhere and everyone lives and... Uh, we all, we all, uh, no one starves to death and everyone's rich. Like, yeah, fantastic utopia, but he gives some really concrete examples of how that would work and how that would look economically. Um, he goes on to say with a clear and conversational tone, exhaustive research and vibrant illustrations by Zach Weiner Smith, open borders makes the case for unrestricted immigration, easy to follow and hard to deny. And it does. I'm not an economist. I don't find it interesting. I don't even think about immigration very much. It's not a topic close to my heart. I found this book endlessly eye-opening, like super thought-provoking, very cool, and I I, I, I do highly recommend it to everyone, especially anyone who believes in tight borders, strict border policy, and is open to having their opinions challenged. I think this guy presents some interesting food for thought. If you believe immigration should be restricted at any level, to any degree, this guy presents some really interesting food for thought.
1: So my thoughts on that is it immediately goes towards like the one world government kind of thing. Uh, And I am against that, like having one government for the entire world, because to me that is uh, more of a takeover of all the separate sovereign countries. The other thing I want to say regarding immigration is that I don't think it's it's victimless. So like if if we do open our borders, that's not to say that somebody else is stepping in and guarding our borders and profiting off of it, because I do think cartels will force people to pay money in order to cross that border. And I do think that it also Uh, opens it up to more trafficking situations like human trafficking and human trafficking is rarely talked about nowadays but it's a huge epidemic
0: yeah that's 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 an interesting thing too is i I had never known that was really as big of a deal as apparently it is and i don't know enough about it but i do know it's bigger than i ever thought um and do you mean like okay using like say america and mexico as as a close to home example if if the two countries were to say okay open borders anyone can go between the mexican and american border as as they want we're taking down all the border checks like it's just wide open uh open game you're saying that cartels would would uh overtake access
1: Mm -hmm. across the border you're you're gonna instead of going through a a government border you're gonna go through a cartel border
0: to get there you're gonna have to pay them and i think in that scenario this theorizes that Governments would remain, there would still be an America and an American government, there would still be a Mexico and a Mexican government, there would just people would be free to pass between the two. And I think what he's talking about is almost like the um, free marketplace concept of competition, supply and demand of countries would have to compete to attract people to their country, because it would no longer be so... Uh, Like if everyone wanted to flock into America, we would find ways to make use of those that new influx of citizens. And it would force Mexico to become more attractive to people to entice them to stay rather than expecting them to stay because it's just you can't go anywhere else. You can't go to America. So we don't have to make it attractive here in Mexico. I think that's a super boiled down uh, layman. Description of what he talks about, but he gives like incredible detail on what that would look like. But I think one of the underlying principles is competition and free marketplace with separate countries remaining, but being required to compete with each other to attract citizens and motivate them to stay because they could go
1: anywhere. Yeah, this is such a mul- hairy slash multi prong thing because I do feel like also if we as this country would stop destroying other countries like that. Like we need to stop doing that first and that, foremost. That'd be a good place to start. Yeah. That'd be a good place to start it because I mean, you go down the list of like Panama, Venezuela, <laughs> some of the policies that we've done to, oh, uh, dude. if any uh, real democracy starts
0: sprouting up, America is the first in line to squash it, uh, yeah. in the name of freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. So we are gigantic hypocrites. We have no interest in profligating true freedom uh, anywhere else. We just love um, we love spreading control for sure. But raw democracies, no, nah, we're not we're not into those. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally agree. But th- this book, dude, is man so interesting. And whether you agree with what he's saying, whether you. Don't agree with what he's saying, even if you think, yeah, of course we should open up all borders. Like I, I don't think that the vast majority of us, almost none of us, have ever looked at it from the perspective that this guy's looking at it. And he does this incredible job of making it so easy to understand these economic arguments, um, uh, the, the reasons and metrics he gives for pro or cons on all the the, the millions of different questions that the idea of open borders poses. It's a super interesting book and a really quick and easy read and a fun read and a different kind of book than I've ever read. A graphic nonfiction book is new to me.
1: No audio version on that. You
0: need the pictures. It yeah. is a comic book. Just like you can't have a an audiobook version of a Spider-Man comic book. You can't have an audiobook version of this. Maybe it exists. I would not do it. Buy this book. It's a super quick read. Like I said, read it on a flight. Uh, it's a quick read. Maybe a couple hours at most. Um... It's really interesting, super cool. Yeah, so cool. open borders, yeah. the science yeah. and ethics of immigration, uh, nonfiction comic book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So highly recommend it. Yeah, that's the first time I've ever heard nonfiction comic book.
0: Dude, it's it, and it may sound weird, and you, your reaction may be like, "Yeah, no, nah, that sounds like a waste of time." I, I swear, it is a super interesting, fun not waste of time it totally cool book i'm super glad i read it
1: yeah okay i'll check that one out all right
0: yeah 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 maybe i'll send it to you i like gifting books now i think that's a cool thing to do
1: (laughs) just don't give Um, me those uh the uh the books that i have to use my phone to read yeah that you have to use your phone to read the uh what is that called the the platforms. yeah kindles and stuff i i i
0: I don't like ebooks i don't either and i know a lot of people that do i'm sure they're great i i can't get into an ebook like if i'm sitting down and reading something with my eyes i want to read a paper book i want to feel the book i like to make notes in certain books i'll write in margins or or highlight things i like a tactile i like a paper book um or an audiobook but i'm not i don't like ebooks yeah i'm the same way i with you on that yeah you don't have the uh Maybe if I traveled a lot, I wouldn't want to travel around with a bunch of paper books because they're heavy and take up space. Um, I know Tim Ferriss reads ebooks and that I, I assume is part of the reason that he's always running around and he travels with like a fucking backpack. Um, so maybe space is the reason. But I love a paper book. I like writing in it. I like the feel of a book. I like turning a page. Uh, I'm kind of stupid, so I like to read with my finger, which I guess you could do on an e-book. Do you read with your finger when you're reading a book?
1: yeah sometimes i do yeah i'm not uh uh, i'm not above reading with my finger i'm slow i'm i'm a slow reader sometimes i got to go back over the paragraph a few times i'm like oh i didn't read it oh let me read it again oh i didn't read it again i went through a
0: thing where i tried to be a speed reader and i thought like oh if i could read fast i'd be more efficient i would get through more books and then I, I, i i came to the conclusion that i get more out of a book when i read it slow and sometimes even I'll get through a whole page and I'll get to the end of it and just go like, I, I didn't, I didn't grasp that. And I'll go back and just read it again, you know? Yeah. Um, and I like that in a paper book. Uh, well, I guess you can do that in an ebook too, but I, I like that. I can just go back and read it again. I'm not concerned with how long a book takes me. I'm reading it to read it. I'm not reading it to finish it. And, uh, I get more out of a book that way. And I like taking notes in books, uh, it's oh, yeah. strangely
1: enough too. It's for me. It's easier to find something that I read before in a physical book than the ebook. And I know in the ebook you can search the text, which is nice. But every time I always get the piece of text that I'm looking for wrong. I'm always like, uh, "Oh, what word do I use in order to find that that sentence?" And I'm always botching it. But with a physical yeah. book, I can usually get to it quicker and find where it was at.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. I, I get a lot out of having an actual physical book. And then even with audiobooks, I use the back button all the time. Sometimes I'll hear something and just go like, Whoa, that was nuts. Or maybe my my, my attention drifted for a second and I missed something. You can just kinda go back. Uh, I'll set my back button to be but my back button to be like a thirty second rewind and just, you know, hit the thirty second rewind once or twice to go back and hear a part over. Um, yeah, I do that a lot. I'm not concerned anymore with finishing a book quickly. I'm not even concerned with finishing a book. I I just, I'm, I'm in the book. I want to, I want to retain and understand everything that's being said. And if I have to read or listen to it two or three or more times, that's fine. I don't care. I'm here to absorb the info, uh, and the ideas. And I'm not concerned with finishing quickly anymore. And I get a lot more out of it.
1: Yeah. That's when you, when you lose yourself, right. That's kind of like the whole point. You lose yourself in the book. Yeah. And you don't realize that you're like burning through the pages. That's the best place
0: totally so i got one more bonus recommendation you got anything else you want to throw out there
1: no not really uh what do you got all right there
0: okay so my last one is a kid book a baby book um we both have kids i'm sure you had some favorite books when uh when esme was a little girl or probably even some books now still that she's getting older and do you guys read a lot no no
1: all right she so like bad. She's, she's a great reader she's a great she she has skills of a champion for reading but yeah we don't read at all
0: all right all <laughs> right well we uh read to a nauseating level uh every day before nap time with uh, michael my two and a half year old uh he has to read a couple of books he just loves them like that's just part of our routine we can't even get him to go to sleep unless we read a book or two or three um so we end up reading the same ones over and over again which is good for uh, retention and language and all that. Yep. And so we read a ton with him when he was a baby before he could talk or before he was really even reading we would just sit on my lap and we would just read books. My wife loves reading it to him all the time but I had a book that my wife bought me called Your Baby's First Word Will Be Dada by Jimmy Fallon uh oh, NBC's yeah. the Tonight Show host. I love yeah. Jimmy Fallon, he's funny. Yeah. And uh he wrote a book called Your Baby's First Word Will Be Dada. And he has a funny description on the back how when he had his first baby or when his wife was pregnant, like his whole goal was to make that baby's first word be dada. And he tried everything he could think of to get her to say, I think it was a girl, to get his little daughter to say dada. Um, and she didn't. She ended up saying mama is her first word, I think, yeah. uh, or something else. But anyway, this book is all about getting your baby's first word to be dada. And it's a super cute, quick, little, hard um, what do they call them? The, the hard books with the hard pages. So the babies can't tear them. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And, thick, uh, like uh, board, uh, board books. That's what they call them. Board book. Oh, okay. Um, so this one's just a bunch of little animals and like the, the, the daddy cow wants his baby cow to say dad, but the baby cow says moo and the daddy cow is all upset because <laughs> his baby won't say dad, and the whole book goes through that. And, uh, I am recommending this because it was the book that my boy and I read together more than anything. He loved it and it worked and his first name or his first word was dada oh how so, cool! yeah yeah. Uh-huh. yeah i don't know if it would have been otherwise but uh i'm sure the book didn't hurt and yeah so jimmy fallon's book your baby's first word will be dada worked i am a success story of one and my boy's first word was dada so that's a
1: book it's a genius book
0: it's it's brilliant yeah. I, I like jimmy fallon he just seems like the nicest guy and and uh uh, it's a cute little book. It's a quick read. Kids like it. It's visual, super simple. Uh, he memorized it in almost no time to where you can go through it, and all the different animals want their baby to say dada. So it, a duck, Daddy Duck, wants the baby to say dada, but the baby says quack. And Daddy Frog wants the baby to say dada, but the baby frog says ribbit. So it's also teaching him animal sounds at the same time, you know?
1: The and word all dada the while, appears plethora Every released. page. Every <laughs> page.
0: So reinforcing say dada first, but also learn what a frog says, you know? Yeah. Um yeah, so it's a super cool little book. Totally worked. My boy loved it. And uh now my 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 second son Benjamin who's 7 months now, I read that book to him also and uh I also want his first word to be dad dad, but I also feel like if it is, I'll feel a little bit like a dick, so I kind of <laughs> would prefer if his first word was mama and We're even debating whether or not his first word was already mama. It's sometimes it's hard to differentiate between just baby babble and words, but I think he's already said mama. Uh, may, was what he said, Uh but we don't know. Um, but I think that's what happened, but he is on the verge of first words. So, um, yeah, reading, uh, reading dad with him also.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, there's gotta be a counterpart to that, right? You're, your child's first words are going to be mama i mean if not there's a book idea right there too uh
0: jimmy fallon actually has another one when i was researching this book i had to go look it up to make sure i had the details of of uh fallon's book right and uh he did come out with one soon after the the new york times best-selling your baby's first word will be dada and the new one is called everything is mama um, so he does have a mama book and I just ordered that Amazon's actually delivering it to our house today. Uh, so I'm giving that to the wife and we will see if we can make Benjamin's first word mama. Although Why not I think it already sales? was. Do
1: what? Why not double Why, yeah. your sales? You know? Yeah, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. These are all for all the dads. So let's make it for the moms. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's a dumb idea.
0: So super cute book. Uh, totally recommended it. It worked. Our boy loved it. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, so Jimmy Fallon's Deda, and uh, I'm sure his mama book is just as just as good
1: well, that's cool. I'm gonna have to uh well re- I think we're a little past that for my daughter oh but yeah uh, yeah it's uh <laughs> it's baby it's a baby book, yeah, yeah, what was Esme's first word? You know, I think it was mama, okay, yeah,
0: it's, I'm it's sure tough it was to a tell mom. it's not normally like a very clear mama, uh like for Benjamin. He's already said like Meh Meh in the middle of crying like ah maha meh meh you know, we're like, Oh, was that mama? Or are we just, you know, projecting onto baby babble? Um It's yeah, tough to tell you know, a little I, bit.
1: I can't I'm embarrassed. I can't remember or, but I think uh maybe it was dad. You know, she was really good at dad and um what she would do is she used to do this cute thing where she would say, Doy 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 doy. Dor, dor. <laughs> and as weird as it sounds like she would just keep saying it like door door and i have a video of her doing that too just dor, dor,
0: dor, dor. <laughs> yeah it's tough it sounds like are you trying to say dada i mean, I, we'll, we'll just go with that we'll just say that you're trying to say dada yeah because that makes me happy yeah yeah no it's it's funny It's the first word thing Now with michael it was very different he very clearly said dada and he did refer to me as dada and then he also started referring to everything as dada
1: uh no, so yeah. like literally
0: a chair was dada a hat was dada my phone
1: was dada like everything was dada your heart gets um, broken when he starts doing you're like uh oh, man that it was just uh, me
0: well no no I, I looked at it the other way i'm very full of myself so i was just like yeah he he perceives <laughs> everything as dada like yes the phone is dada we are all, all is dada dada is all
1: the chair yeah. is great that's da.
0: yeah you like the that chair, chair? okay yeah. then it's dada
1: You like this quesadilla? Oh, that's da da.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. Everything was da da for a while. (laughs) (laughs) The big cheese. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. So that that's all I got, dude. Three books. Oh, cool. Um, a kid book, and uh, I don't know. This was a ton of fun, man. It went a lot longer than I was thinking. I thought it would be a quicker show to go through three three books, but. was really fun to like dig into each one of these and talk about them
1: yeah no it was very interesting and uh and i do i want to listen to those now um
0: all right all right and, yeah no i would totally recommend them yeah. uh in fact i did i did just recommend
1: them i'm gonna have to uh go back and get audible i think go back on there's that a lot of services these days
0: audiobooks in particular are more popular than ever so there are more of them out there than there's ever been there's incredible audiobooks. Really great narrators are producing. They're starting to put out really good content. Like, dude, back in the day when you were going to listen to a, a book on tape, as they used to be called, like you were yeah. literally buying a small suitcase with like 14 cassettes oh, in it. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that's insane. Um, now, your phone, dude, couple of clicks. There's several different great audiobook apps out there. Uh, there's even free ones. LibriVox is a cool free audiobook app. Is that what um, you use? No, no, I I use pay services now. I have listened to LibriVox books. And what LibriVox is, is it specializes in public domain works. So I think anything becomes public domain after 100 years of publication. So Mm -hmm. anything that was published now, like after 1920 or whatever, would be public domain. So a person could put out a public domain book and not have to pay royalties or anything like that, which makes it free. So you could put out a book that was written back then, and now it becomes free. Uh, so LibriVox specializes in those. So there's a lot of cool classics, a lot of cool older books. Um, and voiced, like a lot of times you can find an old book on LibriVox that's voiced by eight different people. So you can kind of go through the same book and find like maybe a, maybe a narrator that you do like. Oh, yeah. uh, the quality is a little less... On average, than it is on on one of the major audiobook platforms or services, but uh, LibriVox is a cool is a cool free one. Um, there's a lot of great ways to listen to audiobooks these days, and uh, I mean, all of our phones are smartphones, and they almost all connect to our truck. You know, our car. You can connect it through Bluetooth. Listen while you're driving. We listen all in have your earbuds. Yeah, we don't all have. Yeah, everyone has a <laughs> truck. Uh, you can just listen in earbuds, whatever. I listen to audiobooks while I'm like. Going through my morning routine, making breakfast and taking out the trash. It's a good hour or more of just me audiobook time every morning while everyone else is asleep. I love that time. Oh, really? Anytime I'm driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bluetooth earbuds, so I'm cooking my brain while I'm learning. Yeah. 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 Love it. Love audiobooks. Love paper books. I love the feeling of sitting down with a paper book. I just don't get enough time to do that. So I listen to tons of audiobooks and just a few paperbooks. Um but I love it all. I love the shit out of it. And I got a million more queued up for future damn book shows. I'll tell you that. Oh, damn. Oh shit. Aw, oh, shit. All right. Well, let's wrap her up, D. This all was right, a ton man. of fun, brother.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Definitely. All right. Well, okay. thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope we got a at least one or two cool things out of this that you are interested enough to go check out or go consider. Totally recommend the ones that I recommended, uh, which should go without saying. But, um... Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Peace out. Hey, this is Mike. Thanks a lot for listening. We really hope you're enjoying the show. And if you are, we could really use your help. Um, Please subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. That'll help us out big time, and it'll make sure that you get notified when we put out new episodes. Also, if you like the show, or if you know of someone who might also like the show, uh, share it with a friend shoot them a text, let them know what's up, put it on your Facebook page or share it on whatever social platform you're using. That would be super cool. We'd really appreciate it. Um, Also for links to anything else we might be doing, you can check out DerekandMike.com. Thanks again. We really appreciate you and we'll talk to you next time.